you, worship team. You may be seated. We, I am personally thankful there are so many skilled and talented people here, and I'm always thankful when they show up on a Sunday morning because you don't want me to sing a solo or try to play the piano, and uh, so we are appreciative of them. Uh, as you know, uh, one of our elders is moving on to a little town called Spokane, and uh, Wes Crago, you notice in your bulletin that the city is having a reception this next Friday evening for Wes. And uh, I've heard rumors that there's going to be a dunk tank and, and maybe a row, a row of cream pies at this event. So I don't think I'd want to miss that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but just so you know, we will be sending off uh, Wes and Vanjie and Krista next Sunday. We'll be their uh, final Sunday with us, at least at this time. We've tried to get him to commute back and forth, uh, but uh, so far he hasn't been able to afford a helicopter. So we will say farewell. Uh, of course, you know, as believers, we never say goodbye. We just say, see you later. And so we are looking forward to that next Sunday. Uh, also, it is great to have uh, extended family and guests with us here this morning, but uh, there's a couple here who are not really guests. They are extended family, Stan and Gigi Horrell. Stan grew up in this uh, fellowship, and it was such a shock to me. You know, I almost had a heart attack when I turned around and there was Stan. So uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for being with us, Stan and Gigi. And uh, they reside. I think you're still in Austin, Austin, Texas. All right. And uh, so... One more place we can stay at when uh, we're traveling. There we go. So thank you for being here. And uh, make sure you say hi to Stan and uh, Gigi. Uh, just a little story. I'm waiting for them to move back to Ephrata because Stan's parents, uh, Frank and Betty, I could always count on them at 4 o'clock in the afternoon having coffee and cookies. And so in making visitation, I would make sure I hit their house at 4 o'clock because they, your mom made the greatest coffee. I don't know what it was about it, but it was very good. So... It is good to see them here this morning. Well, we live in a very noisy world. In fact, the, uh, the noise level seems to increase day by day. Back in 1970, there was a futurist, an author named Alvin Toffler, and he coined the phrase information overload, information overload. And uh, it, at that time, and no, it shocked me, that was 50 years ago, and uh, he, he said at that time that it was one of the major irritations in modern life. And it's only accelerated as we've gone along. You know, there are, now we have these phones in our hands where we're connected to the world if we want to be. There's emails, uh, Twitter, uh, messaging, all of this stuff. Plus, we have to watch YouTube videos of cats and puppies. And so we keep that going. But then even in our own physical world, what we would call the real world, we have different demands and responsibilities that go on in our life. And uh, there was a survey done by Reuters News Organization, and they were interviewing business managers, and two-thirds of the business managers believe that all of this data has made their lives less, or their jobs less satisfying and has hurt their personal relationships. Uh, Contemporary commentators have coined a profusion of phrases to describe all of this noise, all of this stuff coming into our lives, whether we like it or not. And William Van Winkle calls it data asphyxiation. David Shank calls it data smog. David Lewis, information fatigue syndrome. I had not heard that one before. 
uh, Eric Schmidt, Cognitive Overload, and probably my favorite by Leslie Perlow is Time Famine, Time Famine. Because what do we do when we get up in the morning? Well, some of us, anyway, grab the phone, check the email, check Facebook, check Instagram, check uh, Twitter, whatever is your chosen mode of communication. And then, of course, there's always the news, the 24-7 news cycle. Uh, a British journalist named Johan Hari said that there's a good reason why the word wired means both connected to the Internet and also it means high, frantic, and unable, frenetic, and unable to concentrate. And I find, and I, I think studies bear this out, that our concentration time, our level of concentration gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Another writer called it the permanent puberty of our minds the permanent puberty of our minds. And he writes this, through the Internet, it's created this permanent puberty, puberty of the mind. We get locked into so much information, and the inability to sort through the information meaningful, it limits our capacity to understand because we are just bombarded with information. Uh, he goes on to write, the last stage of knowledge is wisdom. But we are miles from wisdom because the Internet encourages the opposite of what creates wisdom. Stillness, quietness, time, and some things we don't like and we think they're not forming us is even the issue of suffering. On the Internet, there is no such thing as waiting. There is no such thing as stillness. There is no such thing as quietness. This author writes, there is a constant churning. There is a constant churning. And so even though we live in a small town and an out-of-the-way place in a way, we are bombarded because we are connected. We are wired in. The problem, by the way, is not finding time and a place to be alone. You know, we can drive five minutes out of town and be pretty much alone. The problem is how to find quietness for our souls in the midst of all of life's noises, the inner quietness in our lives tends to elude us in the middle of a noisy world, but it is possible to regain, regain some stillness, some composure, and quietness. And Psalm 131 leads the way. If you take your copy of Scripture and turn to Psalm 131, we're continuing our journey through the Psalms of Ascent or Psalms of Degrees. They begin in Psalm 120 and go through Psalm 134. And as you can see, we're bearing down on the end of this sermon series out of these 15 Psalms. Psalm 131. Remember, in these Psalms, uh, there is a pattern that occurs with every three Psalms in this set of Psalms in, from 120 to 134. And the, the pattern is, is there is a psalm of distress, it is followed by a psalm of confidence, and then a psalm of security. Psalm 131 is the end of that pattern. It's a psalm of security after one of confidence following one of distress. This is the pattern on the first <clears throat> 12 of these psalms, and we've gone through that before. And so we see this pattern, and really it is about this journey that the pilgrims in Israel, in ancient Israel, would make up to Jerusalem from wherever they lived. And they would sing and recite these psalms as they traveled, as they walked up to Jerusalem at least three times a year, as God had mandated that they worship 
They're these going ups as these pilgrims to the annual feast of Passover, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement, so spring, summer, and fall. They would leave their fields and their work behind and go up to worship for a set amount of time. And so they would remind themselves historically or even currently of their distress and then their confidence. When we are in distress in the journey of life, where does our confidence lie? And then finally, that should lead us to the secure place of knowing that no matter what happens, we have security for the believer in Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ. And so as you take your copy of Scripture, I'll read Psalm 131. I'm going to ask you to stand as an act of worship if you're able and follow along as I read Psalm 131, a song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a winged child rests against its mother. My soul is like a winged child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth, and forevermore. Almighty Heavenly Father, in your greatness, your holiness, your sovereignty, your providence, in your powerfulness, Lord, that you exhaustively know the past, the present, and the future. You know each one of us. You know our needs, our desires. You know where we're at in life and our unique situations. And yet, Lord, you know all of us, and we praise you for that. And thank you for your grace and mercy this day. Thank you for this psalm, a psalm of David. Thank you for his life, and we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to him and to many generations following, and your faithfulness to us in this fellowship here. We thank you for each one here today, Lord. We thank you for our guests, extended family, and we pray, Lord, that each one of us would be attentive today, that you would just calm uh, just the noise of the world that enters our souls, and, Lord, that we would be still and quiet before you, and that we would learn that we'd allow your Holy Spirit to apply this, this psalm into our lives And, Lord, maybe we're in distress today. Uh, Focus us upon the confidence we have in Christ and our security in him. And we praise you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy to meet in this place. Thank you for providing this campus for us. And we thank you for your ever-going faithfulness. And you know the days ahead and what they hold, and we praise you for that. Thank you for all our friends who are here today. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. Thank you for our children and for those in Children's Church and in the nursery and for those who care for them. And Lord, we thank you for our country. We pray for our leadership. We pray for the president and others. And Lord, in this ongoing impeachment, we pray, Lord, that your will would be done. And Lord, that there would be people who would be seeking your wisdom in those levels of power and control. And Lord, uh, we praise you and we pray as believers that we would be peacemakers and we would be winsome. And, Lord, we'd have wisdom in conversations with others. And thank you, Lord, for this day. Now, we ask you to teach us this day in Jesus' powerful name, I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've been with me uh, for any time at all, you know I usually march uh, through from the beginning to the end of usually a passage, expositional preaching. I'm going to start a little differently today. We're going to start in the middle of this psalm. And I want you to focus and notice Psalm 131, verse 2, where he says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, or I have stilled or quieted my soul. A couple things to notice here is uh, the word soul. Of course, he uses the word heart in this uh, uh, psalm also. 
but uh, the soul is like a breath. It's like a breath, and we think of the soul, and the ancients thought of the soul, especially Jewish people, as kind of the seat or the source of our intellect, emotion, and will, and uh, that, uh, that was where that was at. If you are a Trek, Trekkie guy, if you are a Star Trek person, this might help you. This goes way back to Star Trek Three: the search for Spock. Remember the Vulcans? They had a word for the soul. It was called the Katra, the Katra. So if that helps you, okay. So just, just so you know. But he tells he has composed and quieted my soul. Psalm 131 sets forth two requirements for experiencing this inner stillness, this inner peace. No matter what is going around outside of us, oftentimes we think quietness and stillness only occurs when we're in a closet or out in the woods or something. But imagine if you're in a large city, in the, in the midst of a large city with all this activity and all the noise around you. How do we have peace and quietness and stillness. There's two requirements we see in this psalm. First of all, requirement number one, as odd as it may seem, is effort, is effort. Look again, quietness takes effort. You know, the quietness certainly is a gift of God's grace. We know from James chapter 1, verse 17, where James writes, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God the Father who created all the lights in the heavens. The gift is actually from the Lord Jesus Christ through the gift of faith to us. He's accomplished everything necessary for us to live lives of godliness each day. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit who empowers us, gives us our comfort, teaches us, and guides us. Yet quietness is really our responsibility. It is a choice, an act of our wills, if you will. The Note that the psalmist the psalmist says here, I have calmed and quieted my soul. You notice that David here, it's a psalm of David, he has made that decision that he is going to do something. This is the effort. And in the Hebrew, which this originally was written in, it's an emphatic form which takes the form of an oath and stresses the need for our taking intentional steps to experience inner quietness and peace. There's an intentionality on the part of believers in Jesus Christ. Now, David doesn't tell us what he did to quiet his soul, but there are concrete steps to take when the noise level begins to rise. The first step, I think, is to simply acknowledge and admit that the noise in our lives, in our inner souls, and it can happen like, I feel afraid, or I feel worried, or I feel angry, Whatever the case may be, you may sense those emotive responses to life around us. And sometimes we say we're not in control of uh, our emotive responses, and yet emotionally we have control of our emotions. So if you feel afraid, the first step is just to acknowledge it and say, hey, I'm struggling in this area. I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm fearful or whatever it is. But then we need to recall Scripture to our, to our mind. We need to bring to mind if we're fearful. Go back to Psalm 56. Here's, here's a good one. Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. And there's many other places. This is just representative. But even if you have to write it down and post it by your bed, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. Of course, the psalmist here is talking about God. Verse 4, in God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? 
or if you are <clears throat> worrying. My mother was quite a worrier, you know, and I would call her on it, especially as, as she aged. She went home to be with the Lord in, a couple of years ago, but uh, she finally caught on to me when I was trying to give her those little lessons about worry. I said, Mom, you know, and I'd, I'd quote scripture to her, and finally I said, Mom, are you worrying? And Because she was talking about something on her mind, and she said, No, Gary, I'm wondering. I'm wondering. <laughs> I had no response for that. No response. I said, it's okay to wonder, I guess. So, but at many places, and we think of, uh, you know, worry, and you go to Matthew chapter 6, there's a long passage, the end of Matthew 26, on God taking care of the birds of the sky, and they don't worry about their clothing, the, the, the flowers of the field, and why are you so worried about that, about the future? And so having Scripture stored up, having Scripture at ready access to us, is a great benefit to quieting your soul, to bring that stillness and that quietness into your inner life. The third step is to ask God for what you want and, when the, and to trust him to give you what you need. And, of course, that has got to align with his will and with Scripture. In that passage in Matthew about worry, it goes on to talk about those things. These steps can be taken at any time as you're at home by yourself or you're out in a busy and noisy world. Uh, but it's really an honest appraisal of where you're at and who you are. It's an honest appraisal of yourself. And that's what verse 1 is talking about. He appraises his inner and outer person. Notice verse 1 again. Remember, uh, excuse me, O Lord, my heart is not proud nor my eyes haughty. He is doing self-analysis. What is his life like? And then he appraises uh, things about knowledge. Look at the end of verse 1. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Back during uh, the George W. Bush presidency, his Secretary of Defense was Donald Rumsfeld. And uh, Donald Rumsfeld was giving uh, a report. Uh, he was a briefing, actually a Department of Defense briefing back in 2002. And he said the following when asked about a question with Iraq and some of the things that were going on there. And this is what he, 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 he quoted, what he said. There are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things that we don't know that we don't know. And uh, he took a lot of heat and flack from that, if you remember that quote. But actually, he was, had borrowed it from some psychologists who invented the Johari window. And then also at NASA, the Space Administration, uh, the current leader at that time, had used that quote uh, but uh, he was a very intelligent man, Donald Rumsfeld was. But I kind of like uh, one of the current philosophers of our day, contemporary philosophers, and I consider him one of the greatest philosophers of our time. And he kind of paraphrases this verse, the end of verse 1 here, I do not involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. And basically, men, he's addressing us, and this philosopher's name is Red Green. And I knew some of you would get it. Uh, Red Green, a Canadian, uh, you know, good philosophy here, but he's addressing men. He said, pretty soon you're going to find yourself going on and on about every topic under the sun, and you're going to wonder, why am I suddenly the Encyclopedia Britannica in T-shirts and shorts? And why this urge to tell everyone with ears? Well, you're a middle-aged man now, and middle-aged men know everything. 
Oh, yeah. Middle-aged men know the best route on any highway from one place to another place. We know how to fix stuff. We know how to cut the lawn properly. We know everything. But then he warns us, and by the way, I'm beyond middle age, unless I want to live to 140, but uh, so you middle-aged guys, and here's Red Green's warning, but you got to keep this knowledge to yourself, okay? I know that you know that your neighbor is planting that shrub the wrong way, but don't say anything. I, too, have seen my wife painting the bedroom the hard way. Just keep your mouth shut, all right? (laughs) Because when they find out how smart you are, they will get jealous, I don't know who said a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but I'm guessing it's a middle-aged man. (laughs) So whatever it is you know, and I know it's a lot, keep it under your hat. You'll be able to keep your friends. Believe me. Believe me, I know. (laughs) And I think uh, Red Green has it right there in the sense because the older I get, I realize the less I know. And uh, because part of that is the information overload we get, and it is amazing what it bombards us day by day. So honestly, appraise ourselves. So the next thing in verse 2 is humble acceptance of God's care. Humble acceptance of God's care. We talked about the requirement to have a quiet soul as effort. The first requirement was effort. It's an act of our will. The second requirement is humility, humility, and we see that up in Verse 1, O Lord, I'm not proud. Uh, Humility is the opposite of arrogance, and arrogance and quietness cannot occupy the same space. Let me re-say that again. Humility is the opposite of arrogance, and arrogance and quietness cannot occupy the same space. We are seeing currently in our nation a lot of arrogance, aren't we? There's very little humility I think all the politicians and maybe many of us, even in Christianity, need to have a, a humble parade, if you will. The inner quietness is, first of all, a matter of the heart. In verse 1, he says, my heart is not proud. That's the inner man, the inner person. A heart that is arrogant is usually a heart that feels insecure, insignificance, and out of control. And then he talks about the eyes here in verse 1. Nor my eyes are haughty. He talks about our outward expression of who and what we are. He talks about seeing through the eyes to find ways to satisfy deep longings for security, significance, and control. The result is often a frantic running around. In fact, that word in, in verse 1, I do not involve myself in great matters. The Hebrew word literally is I don't run around in these things. I don't try to traffic in arrogant kind of lifestyle. Faster and faster it goes, the frenetic pace of life. Arrogance increases the noise level within. On the contrary to that, humility and quietness are roommates. Have you ever thought of that? Humility and quietness are roommates. There are at least three fruit of this connection in each one of our lives. First of all, for the believer in Jesus Christ, we are absolutely secure in the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. You can read Romans 8, 38 and 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are absolutely secure. And until you come to that point of believing that and, and, and grasping onto that and holding it, you are going to vacillate back and forth about your Security. Secondly, all of our activities in the Lord are significant because of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
Anything we do that's in God's will is significant. Nobody may see it. Nobody may take account of it. Nobody may thank you for what you're doing uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ, but God knows. He is the perfect accountant. He is the perfect one who recognizes and is uh, causing the significance to occur. So you're secure, significant. The third thing is we can take charge of our lives because God is in control of all things at all times and all places for his glory and for the good of his people. Again, Romans chapter 8. As we focus our hearts upon God, his love, his purpose, and power, inner quietness starts to come. I think I've told you many times that I try to make a practice when my head hits the pillow at night that I think back over the day and I try not to think about tomorrow because I don't know what tomorrow holds, but then I rest in the sovereignty of God. I love that term providence. We don't use it much, but remember providence is God's care for all things, his control and care for all things in all places at all times for his glory and the good of his people. We may not see it in the adversity of life. We, it's by faith that we grasp onto that because the word of God teaches that. And those difficulties come and yet do we really believe that we are secure significance and that he is in control? So these two requirements of effort and humility, there are two results then in this psalm. Result number one is quietness within, the quietness within. He uses the picture there in verse 2 of a weaned child, a weaned child. It can stay on its mother's lap, and it's not fussy and demanding. When you think of a child who is breastfeeding, uh, they're always out at it for themselves, aren't they? Okay, their stomach is telling them, I'm hungry, and they know where to get the food. And so they are fussy, demanding, and uh, when they're on the mother's lap, a nursing baby knows uh, that the breast is near, and it's anything, it's not a picture of anything about quietness, is it? I've watched my uh, three youngest grandchildren at that. And, uh, but in contrast, a weaned child, one who is weaned away from its mother's milk, is not grasping, there's no agitation, there's stillness, quietness, and tranquility when they sit at their mother's lap, embraced in their mother's embrace and held by them in that safety and that secure place. I think what a picture David used, what a tremendous picture because I think many of us from time to time are like that unweaned child and we are fussy and agitated sitting in the lap of God and we want what we want when we want it, okay? I'm with you. I've been there. And so that's the picture here. This is a picture of what our lives can be like, regardless of what is going on in the world around us. Though there may be noise all around and adversity and difficulty, there can be quietness for the humble heart. And that is a tremendous picture, humble acceptance of God's care and trust and belief in that he's doing the right thing. And then verse 3, hopeful anticipation into the future. The first result, of course, was quietness within, and then this result is ministry to others. Again, look at verse 3, where he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David is calling out to his community, calling out to his nation, calling out to the people. As soon as he had quieted his own soul, he begins to minister other people. Inner quietness is not a retreat into self-centeredness. You know, we, we Westerners, we Americans, of course, it's, it's part of the sin nature. All people are self-centered. I'm always amazed when I look at my youngest grandchildren over in Montana. 
And uh, Birdie was the firstborn, and she was just happy as a clam that, okay, she's the center of attention. It's all going good. And then along comes Olive. And all of a sudden, her world is turned upside down. And you know if you have multiple children, you know that all of a sudden, children start to realize, I'm not the center of this outfit, you know. And, uh, and then they, it keeps coming like that. We don't retreat into self-centeredness, but it's an inner centeredness, an inner centeredness. There's a difference from which we reach out to others. If we are quiet and still within our souls, no matter what the adversity and atmosphere is around us, we should be like David who wants others to experience what we've experienced. That's the beauty of the gospel. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given these riches of eternal life, the grace and mercy of God. And we would want to share that with others. We come to worship here. We want others to come to worship with us, the loved ones that we know and people at work and at school and those who are going through this life in a desperate disease of sin and death. And they need to know Jesus Christ. We want others to experience. We're hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're turning away from self-sufficiency, frantic living, and turning to quiet dependence upon God himself. Hoping in the Lord is that quiet dependence on God who is characterized by unfailing love and who gives overflowing and superabundant redemption as we've studied in the past. Noise and quietness are not mutually exclusive, by the way, as I said before. We not, may not be able to control the noise level and the adversity and the difficulty around us. In fact, we're in control of very little in that goes on in our lives, but we can control the noise level and the adversity and difficulty because God has made a way for us to be quiet in our souls like a weaned child in its mother's lap. By hoping in him, we can have hope in the midst of our experience of a difficult world. And it's by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that we do that. This psalm talks about humility. Uh, last week, I put this prayer on the back of our bulletin insert, and I repeated it today. I didn't mention it last week, but today uh, it's called A Litany of Humility. Uh, it's written by a, a man in the Philippines. Uh, and I have been using this, not necessarily praying it, although I think there are parts of it that are appropriate to pray. And uh, it challenges my own soul. Uh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. You know, all of us want to be esteemed. It's part of our nature. And yet, to pray these things, and there's a, a lessons in humility here and how to become more Christ-like, because really it is a picture of Jesus Christ who humbled himself, set aside and laid aside the glory of heaven to come and rescue you and I from a desperate, sinful condition. Uh, I think many, most of you know, I was a heavy equipment operator in forest road construction in western Montana and uh, Idaho Panhandle for 11 years. And uh, in road construction, you come to these big, gigantic, you know, that's the, there's a reason they call them the Rocky Mountains. You know, it's all granite and it's rock and it's hard. And there's places where you come to where the heavy machinery can't get through. And so then we call up the guy called the powder monkey and he brings up his machine called an air track and he bores four inch holes into the rock. And uh, some of those jobs took days and days just to bore the holes. And then sometimes we would help him load the dynamite and load uh, the explosives that were going to crack and break that rock up so we could continue building the road there. 
And, uh, you know, the fun part was watching the explosion. The fun part was seeing the rocks fly and the dirt and the dust and all of the hearing the explosion and, and the, the adrenaline rush of all of that. And I think some believers live that way. They live for the explosion, the adrenaline rush. But then there's this, just the, the quiet preparation of our lives. You know, it's boring in road construction to drill hole after hole after hole and not really see much progress in anything. And it takes sometimes a long time to get a shot ready to go. Uh, you know, in the Christian life, we want the miracle a day kind of thing. We want this grand thing to happen, and yet it is a journey, just like these pilgrims in, in Israel knew as they walked up, and they walked up the hill to Jerusalem three times a year, sang these psalms, but they had confidence and security even in the midst of distress because they believed in their God. And for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a believer today, we are on a spiritual journey. Uh, oftentimes the day runs in the day and we're so involved in the details of each day that we forget the long view of where we're going and why we're going. And to remember that, yes, today it seems like we're just boring holes in this journey, but yet Jesus Christ is going to meet us face to face in glory where we will meet him and be with him forever and ever and ever. What a miracle that God has chosen to save us. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, again, I go back to the verse that opened my eyes to the truth that Jesus Christ loves me and has a future for me, and that's John 3.16. For God so loves you, and you can put your name in there, for God so loves you that he gave his only begotten Son, that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. And I always look at consequences and then conditions. The consequence is everlasting life. Yes, who doesn't want everlasting life? And then what is the condition to receive that everlasting life? It is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Over 150 times in the New Testament, the New Testament writers have given us the condition for eternal life, and that's through belief, belief in Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John is so clear in that. And so this morning, if you have never believed in him for everlasting life, I would challenge you to study the book of John in the New Testament, consider your own well-being, uh, and to recognize that there is a future after this world. And where will you be? That is the question. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace and desire. And Lord, uh, we recognize that we live in a very noisy and a difficult, adverse world. And all these things swirl around us and enter our very lives through the power of technology and, Lord, we pray that we would be able to just reflect upon you, that we would have time to spend in quietness and stillness and allow you to do your work, Lord, and that we would make those choices that would honor and glorify you and be good for our souls. We thank you for this day of life. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.